Are you guys ready to get started? Sure. All right, let's do it. I think I stalled as long as I can stall. If the other guys join us, they join us. All right, AK heads, we are back with another episode of the Talking Lead AK Corner. And not just another episode, this is the season finale of season three. The big finale. We've had 12 great episodes this year. And if you didn't get a chance to go back and and check them all out, go back. Uh, Episode one, we had the incomparable Professor Paul Markle on, where we talked about Vietnam era and AKs. Uh, We talked about ARs and all kinds of other weapons in that episode with Professor Paul. Episode two, we had Joe Moe and Charlie Watson with Moe Guns. Uh, Joe and Charlie are veterans of the show. They've been on many times, so you longtime leadheads know all about Charlie uh, and Joe. We talked about suppressing the AK. They do a a phenomenal job with the the AKs that they build. They do really highly custom type builds, and they built a integrally suppressed AK-47. It's called the is it the Raptor? The Velociraptor is what it's called. Uh, so we had we talked about that on episode two. Episode three, we did some competition shooting. We talked about competition shooting, and we had Brian Nelson. He's the organizer of Red October, uh, and then we had a couple of competitors on Kyle Moore, Jared Seagraves with 212 Training Group, which Brian is, is he still doing the 212 or is he like full-time Haley now? You know, I think it's almost exclusively Haley strategic. He's the head instructor there now. Okay. Um, Congrats to him. That's a really cool, well, both outfits got a great deal. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Which is why we've not had him on lately. (laughs) Yeah. He's, he's, busier almost busier than i am which is hard to do yeah definitely and uh, aaron keener was on that episode they had uh, come up and we'd done a a, a class brian uh, there at royal range usa in nashville talking lead sponsored talking lead and occam defense sponsored a um ak specific gun class course there at uh, royal range usa had a great turnout a lot of you lead heads came out for that course and then Brian put on a little uh, gunsmithing armors course uh, in addition to that. So we had a really good time with that, and we talked about that on that episode. Really great group of people, a lot of fun. Yeah, and wonderful. We've, we've had demands to do that again, Brian, so we need to look at well, doing cool. that for, for 2022. Yeah. Uh, and then episode four, I'm just going to do a quick rundown here because this is what you guys missed in this season. It's been an awesome season. Uh, Kalash Smithing, we had John Holton on, and we went into into more detail. I guess that that course that Brian put on sparked a lot of people wanting more to learn about how to work on and how to build AKs. So we had John Holton with M13 Industries on, and uh, went into some real good detail about gunsmithing on the AKs. Episode 5, we switched gears. And we talked about the Uzi. And that was an amazing episode. We have uh, Tom Alabrando with IWI came on. And Tom really knew his shit about the Uzi, man. He knew it inside and out. Uh, that was well, amazing. on the job training, he actually carried one for hire. And, um, yeah, really 
intelligent dude with a lot of wisdom and you know there's a lot of relation there's they're they're sort of sister weapons in the way they're put together yeah um very educational uh talk from him yeah and when we did that episode of course the year before that the the season before that we did an episode on the uh what was it i can't remember we did like kit builds we did some kit uh, or builds. Or no, for guns. I think we might have done the Galil. We did the Galil. Right. That's what it was. Yep. We yep. did the Galil, yep. and we had a lot of feedback. Like, hey, we love the AK Corner, and we love that you you know worked that kind of stuff in. So we've had more requests. So that's why I did the Uzi. In season four, we're probably going to work even more variants in and talk about those. Uh, but in episode six, we did the infamous AK versus AR episode, <laughs> where we, we had teams... We had Team AR and Team AK, and we had, uh, who did we have on that? We had the AR-15 podcast guys, Nick and Garth. Obviously, they were Team AR. Curtis Halstrom was on that episode. Uh, he couldn't decide what team he was on. <laughs> he kept... He's called a traitor is what he is. A traitor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, James Balzac, who, who may also be joining us on this episode. James may jump in on this episode, too. Yeah, he said he was going to make an appearance, which would be great. Yeah, Factory 47, that's where you get the cool Talking Lead AK Corner swag, which we're going to be giving away some of this this episode. Uh, Jeremy Gresham with IWI, the marketing director for for uh, IWI, was on that episode. So that was a really fun episode. Of course, we've got requests to do a repeat on that in Season 4. So we'll probably get another a couple of teams together and, and have a battle out with the AK versus AR. Founded in 2012, IWIUS is the USA-based subsidiary of Israel Weapon Industries Limited of Ramat Hasharon, Israel. The IWIUS line of products includes the Tavor X95, the Uzi Pro pistol and SMG, the Galil Ace line of firearms, and the belt-fed Negev line of light machine guns. IWI's mission is to bring the highest quality firearms with real world proven reliability to the U.S. commercial and law enforcement market. IWI US are proud sponsors of the Talking Lead AK Corner and the Lead Head Brigade. Check us out at www.iwi.us and on social media under IWI US. Trench Art, Episode 7, probably one of my favorite episodes this year. We talked about Trench Art. We had James on with that because James is a, a he's heavy into collecting AKs and he really is into the, the trench art type stuff. So we had him and Tony Haynes on. And of course, Brian was joining us for that episode, too. And we talked about trench art. Um, Margo, what's your experience with uh, with the trench art and the AK being a and I'll do our intros here for our guests in just a minute um, with the trench. art. Well, I mean, uh you know, one thing that if somebody served in the military knows that uh, if a soldier has too much free time on his hands, then uh, some shit bound to happen. <laughs> and uh, one of this is, of course, uh, some kind of scratching the shit on the name of your girl or or some crazy quote or something or, or some numbers of your... Uh, expected discharge date or something on the on the stock or on, on the uh, um, uh, handguard of your rifle. Yeah, and of course this kind of crap is frowned upon. 
to the point where you can get demerits and uh, or, or whatever, you know, kitchen uh, kitchen duty or something else. But uh, nevertheless, uh, it did appear quite often. Yeah. Uh, mainly in magazines, although you know, uh, magazines were not. You know, they often lost, swapped. You know, and and uh, people would scribe, uh, just scribe, you know, scribe their name on it or the girl's name or something like that, and then uh, or the the town they from, and uh, but um, again, uh, if you did something to deface your uh, gun, then you would probably, if you found out, then uh, <laughs> and they can easily decipher decipher if it's a. Uh, your hometown and shit written on it. You can't say, well, I didn't do it. You know, it's some conscript before me yeah. happened to be from my hometown. And had your girl's name on there or something like that. Oh, yeah. They like, trace uh, it back yeah. to you. Well, well, you know, I mean, it was, it was stupid to have a girl go into the military, you know, <laughs> to begin with. Usually those guys were like laughing stock of the entire platoon or something. But in in any case, your name. So you never your, did uh, you never did scratch shit into your AK, huh? Oh, absolutely not. No, no, you didn't. Uh, I was a, I was a, I was a <laughs> yeah. Uh, first weapon I was issued was an SVD rifle. That would be like a, even looking at it right now in retrospect, that would be ultimate blasphemy to deface something like that oh, beautiful. Yeah. But uh, when I finally got the AK, it was already plastic, so you couldn't really scratch anything on it. That's and true. besides, you know, um, being where we were in the like ultimate sandblasting box, you know, your AKs would get like polished and shit <laughs> after a while. Um, so right, that's one. Jeff has joined us. Jeff, welcome in. Hey, yeah. uh, can you guys hear me? Yeah, we hear oh, you yeah. good. Loud and clear. Oh. Cool. Yeah. Sorry that I'm sorry I'm late, but yeah, happy I was able to make it. Hopefully, I didn't miss too much. No, we're just we're just getting rolling. So what I'm doing is I'm just kind of rolling through our episodes this season, since this is the finale. Just kind of recapping the the previous episodes that we did this year. And episode seven was trench art, and uh, we were just kind of busting Marco's chops there about uh, if he had done any trench art uh, during his time of service. <laughs> What about in the uh, the American forces, Neil and and Kurt? Uh, does does that kind of stuff happen in uh, the U.S. military? I've seen it on personal equipment, but not on um, on rifles. That's a huge no no, at least in the regular army. Um, like I did when I invaded Iraq in '03. Every city I was in was on my Kevlar uh, my Kevlar cover until we hit a normal fob, and they were like, "What the actual f are you doing with that on your head?" And I was like, "Nothing, Sergeant Major." And so that, that stopped real fast. And that translated to a chair that I had um, <clears throat> on the arms every city that we would invade and I would get stationed and would get put there. But that was as far as I went because, as Marco said, you know, demerits and KP and kitchen duty and all these kind of things are real things that I got stuck on a lot because I'll be honest, um, I'm good. I'm a good field soldier. I'm terrible at everything else. Um, <laughs> so I got in trouble a lot because <laughs> uh, I had an attitude when I was a kid. <clears throat> no. <laughs> oh, it carries over a little bit i kind of uh, think like the modern trench art though was uh like especially the early days of the war like guys going crazy with krylon and um spray painting their rifles and stuff you know trying to sneak little uh pictures and stuff that was in there i think there was a famous picture of a 
helicopter that was desert painted that had had a chick on the on the side but um but yeah i think that was kind of the the most you could you could get away with without somebody like you know blood spurting out of their head like ah, you get, what are you doing can't do that <laughs> can't get too grotesque with it uh maybe uh, can i interject absolutely quick uh, just kind of add to what i was saying about the too much uh free time on soldier's hand usually leads to something awful um stupid i would say in the uh, you know department of stupid but in any case um there's like a soviet tradition and uh, i don't know if carried into uh, russian military i probably did um once you did a year of service into uh into your two-year mandatory service you started to think about the um being released from your service right that's called uh, de- demobilized Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a certain things that that um, that you have to do uh, to prepare for your release, discharge. And I found them extremely grotesque and stupid, beyond like my every fiber in my body refused to do that shit. But nevertheless, some of the guys that uh, not necessarily in my unit, but like the unit we were attached to, would go all out and the. Two things, and that's where I guess that artistic um, uh, need is fulfilled. I guess mm-hmm. not necessarily in uh, ruining the, your uh, equipment that you were issued, but more of like a preparing your uniform that you're going to be de- discharged in, and then go home and literally look like a freaking peacock uh, walking the streets of your hometown all kinds of enhancements to your regular issue uniforms to the uh, point of like white piping around the lapels and <laughs> big old freaking uh, the parachute weaves cords and stuff hanging like from a 19th century freaking civil war uh, generals <laughs> uniforms and and apart from that also the the photo album you know the the album that you have uh, you know the the kind of recording your service and it had to be decorated by hand and everybody really? had to i mean there were people who were not very artistic so they'll find some young soldier who in fact had some kind of talent and they would make him make him the album and stuff and and they had to be hand drawings and it's like in the best traditions of stupid cartoons uh, multiplied by um, pinup girls. Uh-huh. I mean, everything went in there, <laughs> and it's all somehow related to the first day of service. How they, uh, you know, they were learning. They were green horns and stuff, and learning the ropes. Then going through the their maturation you know, process, one year, and then so on and so on, shaving your head the hundred days before you discharge, then all that bullshit that i kind of did not participate in and then it just so happens that um i i was sort of like a lucky in that regard because uh right in that period i was uh actually wounded and uh and wind up um spending the rest of it in the hospital and then going to wrestling for military but um yeah like i said and uh, saudi is probably familiar with that uh, talking about uh some art um projects that existed in the soviet military in the way of dmb album 
So Sonny Pazikas has joined us now. Sonny, welcome in. Yeah, that's what I was addressing, Sonny. You, you can you guys hear me? We can hear you. Can you hear us? Yeah, I can hear you. You hear us good? Man, look yeah, at you all professional. Look at that studio, man. That's right. Are you on the are you on the uh the airwaves these days? Yeah, I'm doing my own podcast from here, so this is my little podcast studio. Awesome. Awesome. Congratulations, man. I didn't know you were doing a podcast. Yeah, yeah. What's it called? Gospel of Violence Podcast. Oh, excellent. Can't wait to check it out. Yeah, it's kind of evil. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know what, Marty? Give me two seconds. I've actually got some some war art, and I'll go grab it, and I'll bring it back and show it to you guys. It's we kind love of show excellent. and tell. Yeah, since, that'd be awesome. That's the, it seems to be like that's the flavor right now. Yeah, so let's I'll go do grab, that. Give me two seconds. Let's do that. Let's do that. So I haven't done intros yet. So our listeners are like, who the fuck is that talking? <laughs> Who's talking? Who's talking? So um, we're talking trench art right now, Sonny. And uh, Marco was kind of going through and, and giving us his take on his experience when he was in service. And uh, apparently Jeff's got some, so he's gonna, he went and got some. So talk about your experience with trench art when, uh, during your time of service. Uh, my what? A trench art. Like a art that soldiers do, you know, like, like carvings in their their weapons, oh, that, or yeah, shit like that. Well, it's generally it's it's very simple. Uh, at least for uh, in our unit, it was all about you know at 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 certain point you start after what you we used to refer to as prikaz when the order from the minister of defense comes out about every six months about recruitment of new soldiers and then uh you one step closer to what we refer to as dembil which is retirement and uh that's when you start as you start getting uh you know 12 months six months away from your retirement short timers that's what we call of your, of your of your regular service uh, that's when people start writing down the the carving in the dates and uh People that were deployed a lot of times, they uh, carved it on the, if they had, you know, wooden stock or, or their shovel or whatnot, they would carve it in certain locations and, and sometimes even events. But for the most part, it was dates, names, sometimes locations. Cool. So Jeff's back with us now. What, what do you got there, Jeff? So um, we we had a bunch of like uh, old Soviet tanks and BMPs and stuff that we'd uh, use as targets we'd shoot at out on the range. And so we started started sending um, some of the guys that were out there. So I worked uh, a lot with Afghan um, commandos with with the programs and stuff for all the time that I was over there. So um, so if anybody of you seen the Ready Man logo, it's the skull that's from the new Defiom skull that's from um, Special Forces. And then I replaced one of the arrows with a uh, with a tomahawk and then um, one of, and then um, instead of a dagger going through the skull is a Bowie knife because um, I like Bowie knives and I like tomahawks. So anyway, so this is one of the, one of the buoys that we made, you know, and I, I don't know how good the steel <laughs> is, but it's, but it's pretty cool. You know, it's got brass on, on either side. You so made this in the field. Yeah, yeah, we we made that. We had a you know kind of a as the program progressed, it got more sophisticated. So it was a little bit, it was a little bit um, 
you know, we had tools and stuff like this is a, this is another one that oh, wow. I designed and the guys made for me. So this is made out of a BMP side of a BMP. And then, um, this is, <laughs> oh, wow. this is actually, a, a bayonet that was off an AK. I believe this was an AK, uh, 74 or an SKS replace the handle. These are copper on either side. So, you know, it was pretty, pretty cool. Still had the, still had the sheath of it. And then kind of the thing that really kind of became the tradition was, um, we started, started doing tomahawks. <laughs> and so as, as guys came to the, came and left, you know, as at that place, then we would, and there's the maker's mark of the guy that was making them. And so we would, um, as guys did good jobs and stuff as they were leaving or whatnot, they got a tomahawk as kind of a, yeah. a piece of appreciation that was there. So the the first tomahawk actually went to a guy. His name is Keith Butler. Some of the listeners may know who Keith was. He was a uh, SF guy. He got killed on an assault one night. But uh, actually, his tomahawk. I don't even know if his family knows the story, but his tomahawk was part of a barrel. Uh, I don't have it, obviously was part of a barrel out of a T-55 and you could still see the riflings on one side where the guys had heated it up, flattened it, and then, you know, probably went through 15 grinder wheels, grinding it down and then reheat treating it and, you know, and whatnot. So yeah, we had some pretty cool stuff. That Eat we your did. heart out, Forged in Fire. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Our version of Forged in Fire. And guys would do other stuff too. We had a data sheet that we would do art with data sheet is um is a really thin explosive that we use for breaching doors and whatnot and so what we do is we get the data sheet we get these plates of brass or zinc they're you know like a foot by foot and then you'd cut out the data sheet and then and you'd lay that on there and then you'd set it off and it would it would push in and you would have the outline of whatever it was that uh, you were making like a skull or you know, whatever it was, it turned out really cool. I, it breaks my heart. I don't, I gave mine away thinking oh. I'll get another one of these. <laughs> and, uh, of course I, I never got another one of them, but, um, yeah, there, so there was some cool stuff that guys did, you know, the, the Tomahawks were definitely were, were one of my favorites, you know, as long as along with the Bowie knives and stuff. That's awesome. So for you lead heads that aren't on the video, you're listening on your, iTunes or Spotify, you need to go watch this video because we've got some great um, images for the video. This Jeff's holding up a tomahawk there. So. Damn. And you get to see Sonny's beautiful bald head. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Well, he's, he's also got a – You're a good company, great, Sonny. Jeff. Yeah. How you doing? Long time to see, brother. You too, man. How you been? So I guess well, now would be a good I'm time to do to the – Salt Lake uh, in a couple of weeks, so I'll see you there. Salt Lake. Awesome. This would be a good time to do the intro for our listeners uh, so they'll know who we're talking to. Uh, the, the voice you just heard was Sonny Pazikas. Sonny, uh, it's been a long time since you've been on. It's been a, you know, about five or six years at least. And it's been a while, yeah. We, yeah. we tried to get you on. You know, This, that, and the other thing popped up. You know, your your movie stardom and all that. You know, you're a big Hollywood. Yeah, I'm trying to play Untouchable. I'm trying to play Hard to Reach, Hard to Get, you know. <laughs> that That's you. That's you. Uh, and apparently you're starting a podcast now too, competing with me. Perfect. Uh, no, I'm not competing with you, man. I'm uh, I'm not <laughs> talking kidding. about any gear. I'm not talking about anything else. This is just strictly about uh, 
strictly how to kick ass. I love that. I love that. So the master of kicking ass, Sonny Pazikas, joining us, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Former former Soviet soldier as well, uh, like Marco. Uh, Marco Vorbiv, uh, been on, well, this is like your third or fourth time joining us, right, Marco? Yep. A few times, yeah. Yeah, Marco's been on a few times. Great to have you back, Marco. Thanks for joining us. Jeff Kirkham, I think this is your third or fourth time as well, so you're you're competing with Marco there. Yeah, yep. And I got to I got to do yours one time. I got to I went up to Salt Lake and I guess we did I guess we did student in the gun, that's what it was. Yeah. No, you sneaked out you were on Ready Man uh as well. We did remember we did like three in a row or something that time. I don't know, man. We were just we were nonstop. We were on a roll. It was fun. I enjoyed it. <laughs> we're, we're pretty lit by the time we finish too. So. Oh yeah. <laughs> I think we're going to be that way tonight, too. Sonny, did you bring your drink? Oh, do you really want to see if I bring the drink? Yeah, let's see. <laughs> okay. All right. Oh, here I go. <laughs> I gotta go get it. Let's start with a couple of things right here. Oh, here we go. Nice. But the best stuff is yet to come, see? So we're getting a tour of Sonny's bar. Oh, look at all that. Yeah, a few bottles here. Tsarskaya Silo. Marco is probably going, oh, I recognize that. You got to break out the good shit for the season finale. Well, yeah, of course. I mean, you know, I have a shot glass, and I think I'm going to have some, in American fashion, I'm going to have some bourbon tonight. Oh, bless your heart. That's what I'm having. I'm having a little crown tonight. I upgraded from my Jack. Four roses. Ah, nice. I just polished that off last week. I got to yeah. go get some well, more. I'm a uh, novice drinker at best, and it was Sonny who introduced me to Beluga Vodka. He came to Moscow, Idaho, and and visited us with his lovely family. And it was Jeff Kirkham that introduced me to Basil Hayden, which is just an amazing – both of them are amazing beverages. Um, yeah, that is that has become our standard gift around here is Basil Hayden. And, uh, uh, yeah, Beluga is a little hard to come by around here. I don't know how Sonny smuggles it all into the country, but we thank him for it. I don't really smuggle, actually. Just past week, and I was teaching a class here, and I got two bottles as a gift from students. So ah, nice. I don't even need to buy it anymore. <laughs> when you're Sonny, you get shit, you know. It just comes let's not, his way. Let's not, let's not start going with the Russia jokes, okay? <laughs> Uh, that voice was Brian Keeney, my consummate co-host. Welcome in, Brian. Glad Joe's to have you back. Joe. We missed you last episode. Yeah. yeah, that was a bummer, but I'm super stoked to be here for this one. This is a real all-star cast, and um, you know, uh, there's a commonality that I just realized that Neil, Jeff, and Sonny were all some of my earliest supporters over at Occam, and really all, all of them shaped the development um of what i do in one way or another and so it's really fun to have everybody together and also to be getting to meet marco for the first time and uh so really excited for this episode and um our last guest if you don't mind me introducing here is neil vermilion the combat accountant and uh neil right when i was getting going like very first couple months that i was advertising the pre-orders for the merc handguard Neil contacted me out of the blue and uh, asked if we'd sponsor him as a competition shooter and thought the rail was interesting. And so we got him dialed in and, and um, he 
um, got to know a little bit more about him. And he's one of these very unique individuals living out. Well, if I could live another life, I think it would be Neil's. He uh, was regular army for a while and um, I'm going to mess this up a little bit, but didn't have enough fun there. And so he came back and fought as a uh, fought with the Peshmerga, who are some pretty awesome people um, against some really bad people. And so he's one of the few Americans uh, or there's a bunch, but not by percentage, one of the very few, along with Jeff, who uh, have carried an AK downrange whacking bad guys. And um, so it's a really nicely balanced crowd here and looking forward to, to hearing from Neil's experiences. Um, he's also an accountant and a very accomplished uh, competition shooter. And uh, so we, we talk performance a lot and very rarely um, about his, his prior history. So um, I'm going to be learning along with the rest of the audience here about uh, his adventures. Neil, welcome in, buddy. No, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this. Uh, I'm not partaking in the whiskey this evening. I'm getting over a cold, so I've got my green tea. But um, if you guys want to get another good suggestion, Nika Coffee Grain is fantastic. So I would add that to my list. What's it called? Nika Coffee Grain. And that's a whiskey? Mm-hmm. It's a Japanese. Nika is the company. Coffee Grain is the the subset. I'm um, it's kind of hard down. to come by. Coffee. Is it a sake or a whiskey or what's the... It, it's a whiskey. I can, hold on. Let me... I'll, Show and tell time. Show and tell. Right, there you go. So as, as he goes and grabs that, uh, Marco came back with a bottle of something. What did you have there, Marco? That's a Belvini Scotch whiskey. Ooh. Hmm. All righty then. I don't know if you can. Can you see it? Uh, 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 uh. There. Yeah, Hello. there. Back up a little bit. Unblur your background. There it is. Oh, it's coming. Single malt Scotch. There it is. Nice. It looks tasty. I haven't had that yeah. one before. You gotta have a special glass to drink it in. Ah, <laughs> a fruit. A this sounds like it's gonna be one lit evening. And <laughs> we're just getting started. I love it. <laughs> I love it when a plan comes together. So Neil's back with his Japanese. What is it? Coffee. <laughs> so Nika and I. Okay. If that's coming across. Yeah, it is. But this has become my go-to. I buy this stuff by the case now. It's uh, it's not cheap, uh, but it's worth it. Well, you're an accountant, I, I, you know. So, I, and I upgraded from Jameson Black. That was my go-to. Oh wow! Okay, that's excellent. That's a bold statement. And, and, and Marco, would you mind holding up that flask again? That was that was a thing of beauty. Don't they call it a flute? Is that oh, his flask? I didn't see his flask. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's a mother motherland flask. Margo, there's a uh, setting where you can un unblur your background. I don't, you know, I'm still in the balloons, by the way. <laughs> yes, you are, are hiding you, in the balloons. Are you? Is everybody in the balloons? <laughs> are you in the balloons, no, Sonny? Yeah, I'm somewhere. I'm right, I'm right next to Marco and above Jeff in the balloons. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you can change that if you go up to the, the view. You can change that. There is it, it is. Better? Perfect. Yeah, now that's great. See it perfect now. That's awesome. So, so guys, as you can tell, this is going to be a great show. I was just at uh, episode, so I'm doing a recap of our our season here of the AK Corner. Uh, episode seven was the trench art, which we chased squirrels and we chased that squirrel. Agiprop was the next episode, Brian, that we did with 
Oh, with Oleg Otbashian, who was a uh, propagandist uh, in the uh, propaganda artist in uh, the Soviet Union, and then got uh, fired by the local commissar because the the commissar did not like his art and said he wasn't an artist, so he wasn't anymore, and he eventually escaped over here. And I'm here to tell you, he is one hell of a great artist. Makes some really beautiful stuff. He also does all of our agitprop um, that defend the homeland series is all him and he repurposes um old commie art for uh uh for all kinds of different things but he has a website called the people's cube and he is one of the most rabid lovers of liberty um in america that i've run into and one of the crazy stories about him is he he was told kind of by the commies to get out because of his his protests uh, stuff in in the Soviet Union, but uh, when he got here, he had never been arrested or disappeared in in the Soviet Union. He's been arrest, arrested once or twice for Hillary for prison street art uh, in the United States, <laughs> yeah. and uh, so he he's hardcore, and we love him. Um, so that was a great great episode, and um, the People's dot com is also worth checking out. He's got a couple books as well that are. We also had Bandito Bill on that episode. Bill is from China, and he gave us his perception or perspective of agitprop from China. Um, of course, he was really young when he was there, but uh, really good episode with Bandito and Oleg. And, of course, Brian had his crew on, which they didn't talk a whole lot during that episode. Um, I think they were just there yeah, for we, the education. We, we whipped them appropriately. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you got them. Um, no, you, but they, they had a hell of a good trained, time, though. Trained well. And in episode yeah. nine, uh, another one of my favorite episodes, we had the character Nils Gravelius on, uh, and we talked about the Finnish Valmet. And if you guys haven't heard that episode yet, listen to that episode, you got to go and check out the Nils episode. Nils is fantastic. And I, I was debating whether to get him on this one or not because. I think he would just take control of the show, but (laughs) (laughs) Nils is awesome. So go back, check out episode nine. That was the finished Valmet. And uh, Brian was on co-hosting with me on that one. And then 10, we did the AK-74. We get back to the AKs. And Professor Paul Markle joined us on that episode. Eric from IV8888 was on that episode. John Holton and Bandito Bill again joined us on that episode. Uh, because he wanted to talk AKs, and we didn't talk AKs on the Agiprop <laughs> episode. That was a good episode. It, it really was. Um, and then episode 11, the one prior to this, we talked competition shooting with the AK. Uh, a little more detailed than we did in episode 3, um, where we had Jeremy Gresham, we had Kyle Litzy, James Leffler, Ken Allen of Ken Allen Training, Adam Litke, and Matt Kitzmiller, which Neil's got a connection with with most of these guys with his competition shooting background. Uh, he knows a lot of these guys, and I think they actually mentioned you during during our our talks there to get you on the show. So I'm glad we've made the connection and got you on finally, um, Neil. Um, so I kind of wanted, which leads us to this episode, the finale, which I wanted to go from competition to the combat combat aspect of the AK-47. And I thought, what a better way than to get former Soviet soldiers, former American soldiers, 
and talk about both sides of the AK and combat. And I don't think we could have assembled a better group of individuals, Brian. Dream team. And I did it just for you, Brian. I appreciate that. This is gonna I'm this is shaping up to be my favorite episode of all time already. This is my Christmas yeah. gift to you. <laughs> well, it's it it landed along with Marty sent me a very nice care package the other day. So, uh yeah, it's it's been Christmas twice for Marty this week. Yeah. So, I sent Brian a book from Stephen Hunter who if you guys have ever seen the movie Shooter, he writes that that series of books. And um, he's got one coming out in January, and we're going to have Stephen Hunter on the week prior to Shot Show. And, awesome! And you got to get that book read before then, Brian. So, oh, that that's easy. I've been chewing through his books. I didn't. I don't know how I didn't know about him, but he is an awesome writer, and I loved the movie Shooter. But it's not a pimple on the ass of his books. Um, like it, he actually clearly knows shooting and long distance shooting. And so, you know, when you read a thriller novel, which I I love that genre, but half the time the guys don't know anything about the guns, and it really, you know, it's a an off note when you hear about a clip or which that isn't even the worst of it. Like they'll invent stuff about guns that isn't real, and and that that really takes you out of it. But with Hunter, you actually start learning and researching stuff he's talking about. So really entertaining reads, but also technically, as far as I know, pretty accurate. Yeah. There you go. So that's coming in January. Uh, so with, with our assembled group here and, and Brian prefaced this earlier, Brian and I are not military. Uh, we didn't serve. So, I kind of want to leave it up to you guys on how we maybe dip our toes into this and, and go about talking about the AKs in combat. Who who would like to maybe start off with their experience or their experiences? And Sonny just spilled his shot. Way to go, Sonny. I did. <laughs> Way to go. I saw sparks fly up. And I'm ready to go to yeah. combat now. The party fouls are already beginning. <laughs> I know, I man. It starts early. We still have three hours to go, and there's already smell of alcohol in my studio. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, at, at the risk of steering things, um, this might kick the conversation off. Jeff, uh, one of, you've told me a bunch of useful stories about your time downrange, but one of them... Uh, has to do with, I asked you once if uh, you were ever, if, if counting rounds and knowing when your mag was empty was a real thing. You mind speaking about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, that's, it, it's, I mean, that's not really an AK thing. That's a, that's a, oh crap, I'm shooting back at somebody thing. But um, it, it was, you know, I joined the mill back in the eighties and then came up through there. And the, one of the schools of thought was like, count your rounds so you could, you know, so you'd know how many rounds you'd shot. So you knew knew whether you needed to change your magazine or something. And and then after, you know, being at least the world according to Jeff, right? So it, for what it's worth, maybe a cup of coffee, maybe 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 the tip for the cup of coffee. But um but I, I found and we all found that we we literally after after a few years of running assaults where it was literally the SOP was if you fired one round as soon as there was a lull in the in the fight, you did a tactical reload because you just never knew how many rounds. And and I would come back from assaults at night, and I'd pull out all my aunt, my magazines that were partially spent, 
And I'd go, you know, usually it was like, you know, between one and three, right? Because we weren't getting in big, hairy, full-fledged battles and stuff like that. But, um, and, and I'd pull out a magazine. I'd go, okay, I shot three rounds. And then I'd start reloading it. Well, you know, a magazine holds 30 rounds, right? And I'd start reloading it. I was never even close on how many. Even when I thought I'd shot like two or three rounds, it'd be like five, six, seven. And it's like, oh, Oh wow! Okay, this is a this is a new revelation about you know about stress inoculation auditory exclusion underneath in in combat or high stress critical situations, and so it it was you know it's not that's not AK centric so to speak, but um, you know because that carries across all the discipline. It doesn't matter if you're shooting a pistol, a rifle, a shotgun. I would argue you're gonna unless you're shooting a double barreled shotgun. Well, then you probably got it. But outside of that, you're probably going to lose count because the sympathetic response is pushing you to focus on the threat, not do that higher thought process that takes place of trying to count when you do it. And there's actually some pretty cool games that you can do that will will prove it to you if you're a doubting Thomas. But yeah, so I think I did. I answer your question. Yeah. Perfectly. Well, Thank you. Can I uh, kick in yeah. there? Um, yeah. So. Uh, we were taught to use, obviously, there was uh, two types of ammunition that uh, everyone carried, and there would be uh, regular bull rounds and the uh, tracers. And usually how you load your magazine is that you lo you, you alternate them. Uh, the bull, 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 tracer, it could have been the, every sixth round or every eighth round. And But the last three rounds or the first ones to go in the magazine were three tracers. And so, you know, when you, when you see those three traces going out, so you know you're empty. So you would uh, swap the magazine then. So that and, was uh, kind of a standard had, operating decision. And for us, we had stopped using tracers because tracers work both ways. And we had NVGs and, and lasers. So being able to see where our rounds were, were going, we, we already knew. So we didn't give up the... We weren't giving up the SA to the enemy on, on the fight. And so the tracers, are they still used? Absolutely they are. It, but in the in the units that I was in, we didn't use tracers at all. I mean, Well, we often use trace, tracers also to guide the uh, air support uh, in the right direction as well. It, and we would use lasers for that. Yeah. Well, I guess let's do this. Era. I was, I, I was going to say, let's do this. Let's let's uh, go around the table and everybody talk about your time, the time that you served. So that'll help people put perspective, um, or actually your perspective. You know, they'll get a better idea of your perspective. So we'll start with Marco. Eighty-five through eighty-seven. Jeff, uh, I I was started in O two, and then my last deployment was fifteen. Okay. Sonny. Late 80s, early 90s. Neil. 03 to 09. So we got a pretty good gap in in services here. So it's probably going to be interesting to hear the different operating procedures and whatnot. Um, and well, and, and in Marco's well, case, with being in an earlier time period, you know, the different, the different gentlemen here also had vastly different levels of of logistical support and materiel and so marco and sunny to a certain degree 
that really represents a, a more austere operating environment that in a grid down or, you know, uh, different situations that civilians might encounter in hard times um, is very relevant. And um, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, without yeah. without a doubt. I mean, I'll be the first to admit we were spoiled. I mean, we had, you know, MVGs and lasers and, you know, and gunships that we could call in and so, I mean, we had the luxury of saying, well, we don't need tracers, so we stopped using them. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, there's, you know, it's like, the where's the truth at? Well, it depends on what you got. Well, and, but also there's a lot of civilians with night vision now. Like, you know, the, that, the price on that stuff has come way down. And, you know, the, the um, Russian-made lasers that are able to be gotten on eBay and elsewhere are extremely good, like crazy good. Yeah. And they're only $450. And so night vision is starting to be, you know, it's not cheap, but it is attainable for a lot of civilians now. So I think most of these experiences are going to be valid in one way or another for, for the listeners I mean, here. It's just like anything, right? So uh, I'm sure the military is using a technology right now that will be made available commercially probably in five to seven years from now. You know, the military, and I always say that in my books and everything, it's sort of like a, uh, the, the development of arms and uh, kind of giving the advantage to a certain, let's say, uh, a principality or a country. It's kind of driven the geopolitical uh, picture in the world is, you know, who's got the better gun, so to speak. And in, in, in kind of as, as a, a result, it was also kind of moving the progress. So obviously, you know, that 20 years of uh, constant development and betterment of equipment and military equipment, it's obviously, uh, you know, right there, right in front of us. And uh, I can tell you, I mean, God, we had the drones, you know, those just a uh, Brookstone buying the mall type of freaking drones. That would have been so awesome when I when I was in service, you know what I mean? Or we had our night vision. Yes, it was heavy, it was bulky, but we did have the night vision. And to a certain degree, there would be a limited laser usage, not necessarily by uh, us, the grounds on the ground, but by, you know, some maybe uh, the planes or what, it, what have you. But like I said, I mean, the progress doesn't stand still. It keeps on evolving. And what to see <laughs> to see the average operator right now the equipment that they carry the the type of equipment available to them my you know mind-blowing blowing yeah. it's sort of like if i had that oh my god i mean yeah <laughs> but uh we had to uh we uh uh had to do with what we had and um i think we did well with what we, we had at the time and uh, but like you said uh, you know you know now is different so, I'm curious, Sonny and Marco, have you guys met before? No, we haven't. Oh, okay. We met briefly at the SHOT Show. I at the SHOT Show, but that's not really a meeting. Meeting in Russia is you sit down, you get drunk a couple of times, then we, you met, you've met. In that's, that SHOT Show? Good. I thought that was SHOT Show. <laughs> Bro, I, thought that was the I don't definition think, we, of I don't think we, we had a chance to get drunk, so no, we haven't met. Probably. <laughs> we can do that. We can do that at the upcoming SHOT Show then, definitely. Are you guys planning on that. going? That would be a good one. Are you going to have an episode at uh, at the shot show? I uh, I very well may. I'm I'm looking at some options right now, so I haven't nailed anybody down yet. But 
Yeah. But we did one last year, though. We did an episode. That was a really good episode. Jim was on with, uh, I don't know, we had the guy from uh, PSA. We had uh, John Holton. It was a really good episode. So, yeah, I definitely will do one at SHOT Show if they have it. So, Neil, a little bit from you. You're kind of you're kind of quiet. So yeah, I'm just, you're just more modern. Off. You've been in the more <laughs> modern uh, military. You know, Marco was talking about drones uh, a little bit. What's so, your what's your experience? So I actually have I can actually connect both of those stories that we were just talking about uh, in a personal anecdote. Um, so when I was in the big army, you know, back in '03, you know, just as Marco was saying, I would do uh, my last six rounds as tracers my middle 12 and 13 um, as tracers. So I know, okay, there's half my mag. There's the end of my mag reload time. Cause that was kind of how you were taught. It was supposed to be you know, every third round. Kind of a cheat yeah. sheet. Yeah. Um, but when I was with the Peshmerga, it was a whole different story because our supply chain is um, non-existent. I would have to get ammo. Like we'd roll over to Syria to go buy arms, to bring into Iraq, to fight ISIS north of Mosul. Um, and, as Jeff was saying about counting rounds, so we would, you know, you'd get in a gunfight and you'd think you'd count rounds. Well, you take, trip the mag, put a new one in. And if you go through two and there's a lull, we would consolidate mags because we didn't have enough to resupply to a truck. So, like, you had your six mags on you, a spam cam for the four guys on your team, and that was it. No air support, no nothing. So, it's, you know, every round would actually have to count. So, you'd have to consolidate all your mags on your person because last thing you want to do when you re-index is pull your 15-rounder out. You're like, oh shit, I need a 30 rounder right now. Um, and that was, you know, and that, that's in 2016. So that was a, a 10 year, well, how many year gap was that? That's, you know, um, six years, seven years since the last time I was in Iraq. And the my, my combat experience actually went from being technologically advanced to being technologically inferior and shooting down drones with PKMs and RPDs. Because they, if they get low enough, you're just sitting there. And just like you see on those little newsreel clips, dudes with their feet up on the PKM just trying to shoot down airplanes. That's how our guys are trying to shoot down drones. <laughs> wow. Sonny, what about you? Well, I will uh, attest to that as far as the counting rounds. Um, you know, you can count rounds in the shooting range. You can count rounds when you... Uh, don't have uh, this one little bugging question, am I going to fucking die? Uh, under stress, under duress, if you counting rounds, I would say that you're not doing much else. In the fight, you, there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on. You got to move, you got to maneuver, you got to understand the situation, you got to try to communicate, you got to try to understand other people's communications. And... Uh, we did use tracers. We did use tracers. Uh, generally, it was more similar to what the last gentleman mentioned. We would put a couple of tracers, middle magazine, and then the last five rounds would be tracers. Uh, I know some units, they were putting every five, six rounds. For us specifically, it was middle magazine and the bottom. Uh, as far as technology, you know, Someone mentioned that yeah, a lot of civilians now they have NOGs, they have access to all these uh, great toys. But just because you have a guitar doesn't make you a musician. <laughs> and, um, you know, a lot of dudes have. I wish uh, Jim was on here right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, Jim has a guitar and he's he is a musician. He is. So he's good. He there is, is good. that. Yeah. But. 
No, man, it's uh. All right, my battery, my battery here is trying to tell me that it's low, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna connect it here shortly after I finish. Plug I, it in. Plug it in. Yeah. I'll plug it in. I'll plug it in. Uh, no, it's uh, you know, a lot of things go out the window when when really shit hits the fan. When full stress of everything comes in, a lot of other things that that seem important and and people like to talk about in social media they they will not they simply will not be present they will not be present so as far as counting rounds i will attest to that that um, if someone in training tells you to do that and try to keep up um it's kind of wasted exercise because in reality you will not be there good point so plug your thing in before you forget because we don't want to lose you Get, I will plug it in. Right get that now. juice. Get that juice going. It's like he's got an yeah. altar over there. I don't know. Does that look like an altar to you guys over his over his his left shoulder? Is that an altar? Yeah, I have some. I have some icons. I have some crosses. I just came back from church. That's where I was late. And it's a Russian Orthodox church here in East Texas. So yeah, that's that's okay. We can forgive that. It just looks like you might have been burning some incense and getting in the mood. You know. Well, bath yeah, salts you know <laughs> it's a new age shit man come on so uh so, i attended a, a uh um, an orthodox church for a while and uh it was in a shopping mall which was great because i have a feeling that if jesus were walking around today he'd be preaching out of a shopping mall not a mega church or something like that and uh, so? i think so and uh one uh he'd be on YouTube. one of the aspects we had these low, it had really low ceilings and uh, a big part of the Orthodox service is incense. And it's in this kind of a, a ball and like a mace, like a ball and chain kind of thing. And it gets swung and there's, it's a kid's job, like an altar boy's job to keep that thing fed the right amount. And we had a little bit of a pyro in our church and he would put in, there's these little bricks of incense that go with a piece of charcoal in there to keep it kicking. And I started getting allergic to the incense. And it turns out, I did a little research on it, that all of the um, sage family salvia is mildly psychedelic. And um, so it's like salvia divinorum, which is a kind of a street drug here. It's a, it's, it's basically a psychedelic. And yeah, so the, the Russians know how to get down in church is what I'm trying to say. This episode of the Talking Lead AK Corner is brought to you in part by Occam Defense. The guys at Occam love the AK, but didn't love burning their hands, getting cut by their pre-sharpened gun, or the lack of options for accessories. After spending a few years in the lab, they've recently released the ODS 1775, which brings the best of the AR family to the Kalashnikov's reliability. It's still an AK under the hood. AK mags, forged Polish AK parts, but with American aerospace manufacturing practices and ingenuity. Check them out at OccamDefense.com or on Instagram at Occam Defense Solutions. Speaking of psychedelics, uh, Neil is an accountant for a, uh, a pot company. <laughs> Did I say that right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. So I'm I'm a, I'm an, uh, an accountant that specializes in the cannabis industry. So our company touches everything from seed to sale, um, as well as packaging, marketing. Like we don't do the marketing, but for companies that are in the spaces that that touch those kind of products. Yeah, I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. 
<laughs> and pot's legal in Arizona. Yeah. Yep. They need so an accountant like you. In Michigan too. Very not in Tennessee well, yet. So I mean, we've got more dispensaries. I go in the run for about three miles. <laughs> How did we get on drugs? <laughs> Thanks, Sonny. Way to get us on the drug uh, topic here. <laughs> Hey, don't blame it on me, man. <laughs> <laughs> you, you and you and your shrine over there. <laughs> so, so I want to go uh, and talk about. So everybody's got like a little different era that they served. You know, I think that's that's kind of cool. And being the AK corner, uh, I guess Marco would be the um, the more more senior that that's here. What version of the AK were you guys using when you were in, when you were in service, Marco? All right, so um, let's start from the beginning, so to speak. When you get introduced to uh, in the Soviet school now, back in the eighties, they had the beginners military preparation course in the ninth and tenth grade, the junior and senior year in school, and um, you know. You obviously get this. Every school had a freaking armory in it where they <laughs> nice. kept. Uh, it's you know, true. And uh, and uh, there were a bunch of live guns, like uh, the twenty-two competition guns, and most of the schools had a shooting range in the basement. That's amazing. But amongst the uh, the guns in that armory, there were a bunch of AKMs, obviously, or or um, AK-47s, the old demilled. Guns. So you get introduced into the AK-47 slash AKM type of uh, environment early on. And then uh, you, you said like ninth grade? Up, starting in ninth grade, yeah. Wow. Amazing. And then you graduate, in the, you know, after 10th grade. And, and as a part of the course, you, they take you on field exercise where you actually got to dig the uh, a foxhole do the quick advance, you know, dismount off a truck and all that stuff, carrying these demilled freaking guns and the gas mask. And I remember I was... Is this your PE course? It, it's a beginner's, military beginner's preparation course. That's fantastic. Because majority of the boys had to go and serve, right? They would get drafted. So it was it was a school class, like so you sixth hour or some shit. And uh, they uh, taught you how to march and uh, in, in formation, how to respond to commands and all that stuff. And then as a, as the, not as a final sort of exam, but it's like a, something that you're going to pass this course with. You have to do the field exercise and you have to go to a local army range and actually fire a gun. And uh, so needless to say, every 16-year-old punk graduating from a Soviet school already fired a machine gun. So, uh, and the girls was, uh, boys was mandatory, girls voluntary, and almost all the girls volunteered. So. That says a lot. Go, yeah, so going into basic training when I first got, you know, drafted, and uh, I remember when I was first in um, uh, going into the training center in Ferganam, and we kind of were waiting to get in, and all of a sudden there was a, a like a company-sized unit walking in from a field exercise or something. And here we are, we're still in our civilian clothes and stuff, or what's left of it after a long trip on the train and you know major drinkage going on. 
And um, so um, this unit was going in, and they were holding, they were shouldering these guns that looked AK, but they looked totally weird to me. I mean, they had they they had they had kind of like a a lightness around them, and then they had the biggest thing on the mounted on the on the muzzle device. Little that I knew, that was the AK seventy four, and that was about the time when the rearmament of the Soviet military was going on in full <laughs> swing. So that's how I first time saw the AK-74. And, and it's kind of when you see it for the first time, it's hard not to fall in love with it right away. Mm, yeah. You know what I mean? It's it's kind of like a, here's a little portly uh, AKM <laughs> and then here's this um, graceful AK-74 in the way. And then uh, having shot the AKM and experienced uh, a, a single shot and a full full auto shot and recoils and stuff, and I remember going to the first. Stop uh, one second. Rain- Stop one second. I, I hate to cut you off there. Somebody's getting. We're getting feedback from somebody. Jeff, maybe turn yours down a little bit. Because uh, Sonny's on a mic. Just a little bit. Okay. Go, go, Marco. Sorry. So going, going to a range nope. for the first time. Neil, try basic. yours. Neil. And I, um, shooting AK-74 was like, it wasn't even, it wasn't even, uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for? It was so easy because there was literally was no recoil. It was easy to, to hit the targets. And um, maybe this is the reason why I was, so I scored, you know, first of all, it was uh, three single shots. It was like 27, which was the high score at the time. And then uh, and then I laid, with the six live rounds, I laid three targets down with the two-round bursts. And I was selected to go and uh, try out on the SVD rifle after that. So our captain, uh, uh, um, a training company commander, pulled me aside and me and the three other guys were... Gonna look at the uh, for the first time. Look through the scope, PSO scope. But anyway, so that was kind of like the AK-74 introduction to me. And then uh, after ten months in uh, in service, I was uh, I transferred to an assaulter group uh, from fire support group, and was issued the AKS-74 with the triangular stock, you know. And um, that became my uh, go-to gun. Well. The gun, my gun period and uh, i loved it ever since and if you ask me right now seven seven six two or five oh five i tell you you know the five oh five is the greatest cartridge devised by a human race hmm. interesting so well, they call it master race for no for no reason you know <laughs> <laughs> but anyway uh yeah, so that that was my kind of experiences with the AKM and AK seventy four, and of course, um, you know that kind of um, SVD, yeah, uh, that kind of like a it's a first love. You remember it forever for the rest of your life, so to speak, and that's kind of uh, where I'm at. So, what about you, Sonny? Playing off what uh, Marco just did. Well, actually, I have to ask Marco. So, Marco, uh, you from Fergana area? No, that's where Uchepko was. Ah, well, well. So anyway, I was just wondering because I spent some time in uh, in Fergana area years later after Marco's service. But anyway, yeah, uh, very similar. Uh, 
in school we were introduced to the SAP organization, which is a volunteer organization to support Army, Navy, and Air Force. It's kind of like a Boy Scouts on steroids and heroin at the same time. <laughs> um, yeah, we had we were introduced to AKMs. Uh, so 762 by 39. Uh, in my city where I grew up, uh, there was a airborne division stationed. So that's where they took us for a lot of uh, exercises and things. And uh, some of the boys got involved more actively with uh, orienteering and, and, and some other more, I guess, military applicable sports and activities. And, uh, you know, I could skip the biology class instead of learning how freaking flowers multiply. I could go to airborne base and do some fun stuff. That was no brainer. Um, I got introduced to AKS 74 before the military uh, through some different different activities that we don't need to mention. And uh, when I went to military, basically from, from the very get-go from our training company for the first two months, that's what we had in our armory was pretty much exclusively AKS 74s. So that was my experience with the, with the early service. After that, we had a little bit more of a selection of things, plus our company, because we were attached to some units from uh, just outside the Moscow with different organizations, not just Ministry of Internal Affairs. Uh, we were involved with testing some of the newer weapons. So uh, I'm happy to report that I was uh, in the early testing stages of uh, venerable VSS Ventores. Sweet. Which, nice. Yeah, I would love to have one of those units, but... Uh-oh. What's Marco holding? Yeah, <laughs> yeah we, we need to hear after this how Marco got his hands on one of those, because uh, <laughs> for those listening, well, we'll get into it, but we need to hear about that later. <laughs> no doubt. So, did you have any experience with the um, the 760 by 3.9, or are you a hardcore uh, 74 fan, Sonny? uh 74 would be my preference now that being said 76239 has uh in some deployments some of our boys and sometimes myself we did carry 762 by 39 and that really depended on environments we were going into and what was going on sure so we did have somewhat of a choice with that uh but Mission if specific. I were, yeah. if I were to, to to pick one for me, if I only had to pick one, which would be travesty to begin with, uh, it would be five forty-five. Can Can I chime in about the seventy-fours and the units? I mean, yeah. we we had, and, uh, and I want everybody Travis, to feel free to chime in anytime they want to. So, I mean, so we know. we had um, for our we had three um, subgroups. Let's call let's call them this uh, subgroups, and each group each subgroup had two. <laughs> Um, AKMSs, you know, the underfolders and stuff. Uh, and the reason for that was is because you can't suppress 545, but there was a PBS one available with with the um, um, with ammunition, special ammunition that could go silent or could be could go suppressed, and we often had to use that. Uh, and they were designated guys that carried those AKMSs. For those listening, the the PBS one is is the the Dead Air Wolverine is kind of a direct copy of the PBS one. So it, it's really, not. It, it's not. Oh, it, I stand correct. It works, but it in the way it looks, really yes. In the way it works, no. Mm -hmm. Right. The way it looks and the way it performs is great. 
and perfect. And I have like four of them. <laughs> and uh, and the uh, but uh, it doesn't have the Viper. The uh, the Soviet mm -hmm. one came with the rubberized like thick thick neoprene like a material of washers that you would install to retain the gases necessary to operate full auto capability of the gun. Got it. Thank you for that. Let's jump to our uh, Americans now. And we'll start with the most senior, Jeff. And Jeff's been on, like I said, Jeff's been on the, the podcast before, and uh, we did a couple episodes with him. And the first one, he did a great background in his experience. But just high level, kind of talk about your experience with the, the AK, Jeff, because they can go back and listen to the other ones. Yeah, I mean, just real high level. Like, you know, I was like any other guy. I grew up, like, yeah, we're going to fight the Russians and the folded gap and all of this other stuff. And, and, um, you know, and I, and I heard all the stuff about AKs and how the M16 was superior, blah, blah, blah. And, um, and then, um, I actually ended up getting selected, it, it, not because I was anything special. I got hey-you'd essentially to, uh, test AKs. And, um, because at the time, the mill, the war just kicked off in Afghanistan. They were looking for ways that they could do battlefield recovery. They were looking for a M16-esque AR, whatever you want to call it, version that would shoot a 7.62-39. The rifle they were using was garbage. And um, the colonel that was signing the checks said, why don't we just use AKs? And, and of course, all of, the, all of the standard myths came out. You know, they're not accurate and their ergonomics are stink and blah 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 and so the colonel said okay show me some show me some data that supports that socom looked everywhere high and low could not find any empirical data that that supported that and so the colonel said essentially i'm not writing one more check until you show me some data that says what we're buying what we're what we're designing and buying is better than an ak so here i step in i got hey you'd and we tested it, and I went into it totally biased. Didn't think the AK was going to do a good job. By the end of the second day, it was me. I, you know, I was a master sergeant E8, and it was me and a ranger from Ranger Battalion. And um, by the end of the second day, every single round was being counted as to where it was going and what we were doing, and at the ranges and what was blah blah blah. And uh, by the end of the second day, the ranger and I looked at each other and was like, "This is a good rifle." This is like a really good rifle. This is way better than than we had had gone into it thinking. It was far more accurate than we'd been led to believe. Um, we stopped shooting at near end targets, and then there was a whole other cycle where we we're using it for CQB, and we kind of and they were just stock AKs. Uh, rails for AKs didn't apply. It didn't exist at that time, and so we kind of figured out the safety for you know, for the American method of putting it on safe in between shooting sets and whatnot. And we came out of it and we were like, this is a fantastic rifle. Yeah, there's no reason to buy this other rifle. It was the uh, SR-47 at that time. And so, like, I'm literally the guy that killed that program because I wrote up this big report that said, <laughs> the, the there's no reason we shouldn't use AKs. These are fantastic rifles. And then, and then it kind of started my love affair with AKs. Um, and um, and then I went into the counter terrorist unit where I, you know I used an AK for 
you know, the 13 years that, that I was over there, I had my choice of pretty much anything I wanted to carry. I mean, I had a beautiful stoner um, M4 that I could have carried that was probably a five or $10,000 rifle. I shot it once, put it in my thing and carried an AK the rest of the time because I, and it was like the more I carried it, the more I really looked at it and said, oh my gosh, the guys, the guys, I think I call it Team Kalashnikov, you know, because it certainly wasn't just one guy, it was, but the team of individuals. I was like, these guys, these guys nailed it. They really did for what they were trying to do. Um, and, um, and, and that was essentially, and I've shot, you know, 47s and I've shot pretty much every caliber of AK that's out there from 22 to 12 gauge and eight millimeter Mauser and, and, you know, everything in between. And it's just, it's a fantastic rifle system that, I mean, it just friggin' works. And so, um, you know, I, people like to argue, you know, it's less accurate and I'm like, yeah, well, if give me your, give me your AR and I'll shoot crap surplus ammo from some third world country and let's see how, what your groups look like. And, and then when I've shot really well, you know, shot great groups with AKs, I was told that I was overshooting the rifle, which I'm not sure how my, I'm not sure how I can make a mechanical thing work better, but thank you for the, for the compliment. It's, it's a great rifle. I think it's under, I think it's underrated. I love the seven, six, two 39. You know, if you look at the history of that, and I mean, the might of the Soviet Union at that time was behind two things, the AK and nukes. And they were, and they were, they were doing everything they could to develop it. They developed the bullet first, and then they developed the rifle around the bullet. So it's, it's not happenstance or accident that that thing was put together the way it was. And then I shot the AK-74. We had a variety of those. We had Polish AK-74s. That would shoot three round burst, full auto, and semi, and it was a dream to shoot. Um, I will say the AK seventy four, if you're doing CQB, it's fantastic rifle or a fantastic round. Uh, if you need to smash through a vehicle or something, it's not so good because what what makes it so lethal? The Afghans called it the poison bullet, but what made it so lethal made it not so good through through smashing through like cinder block or something but the uh the 76239 was really good for that i don't know so i'm i'm pontificating i think i answered your question though marty well, well, no, if i can jump in on sorry marco uh real quick the application to civilians with what jeff just said is huge so if you're in a high density neighborhood 76239 might not be the best round you know it, it's great to punch through a car everybody loves doing that but that also means that it'll go through, you know, five residential walls. And the well, 74 overpenetrates a lot less, as I understand it. Sorry, Marco, please continue. No, I was just going to add to uh, what uh, Jeff was saying about the accuracy of the gun. And uh, it's uh, 99 out of 100 uh, times it's the guy behind the trigger that's uh, responsible for accuracy. Amen. Uh, Amen. How, however, yeah. However, uh, just an anecdotal story, uh, back in 2001, um, me, Mark Krebs, and David Fortier went to uh, Russia, and um, we were on our way to the uh, city of Vizhevsk, where the main arsenal is, to meet, uh, you know, meet with the factory people there and 
in hopes of meeting Kalashnikov, which we wind up doing at precise time when the towers were coming down in New York. And um, which made our return is kind of interesting because it was all <laughs> ground stuff and, and uh, so on and so on. But however, the night we arrived, I uh, took the two guys, Mark and uh, David, to a friend of mine who was actually on duty. He was an officer and the commander of a Moscow um, quick reaction force. And they just, the, the guys that were on duty in this little, like a, I don't know, like a room with the table and stuff. It looks like an office, someone's office with the conference table in it. And they were all armed. So they were on duty. Um, they had some cool uh, 9 by 39 weapons, some 9 millimeter stuff, a bunch of stitchkins. And then majority of the guys carried the AK-74M, which is the full, you know, uh, old black plastic folding stock. 74s and they just came back from uh, Chechen deployment to Chechnya uh, which at that time the second Chechen war was still uh, in a hot phase and so we start talking of course David being the gun writer and Mark being a gunsmith they were uh, you know asking a lot of questions which of course I was the interpreter and but I had some questions of my own anyway but uh, you know so this guy's these guys, they had duty, so they whipped out a bottle of vodka, some salami and bread and whatnot. So it was a nice, lively discussion. And uh, so the AK accuracy uh, came up. And everybody kind of pointed at one guy. It's like, tell him what you did with your gun. And he says when he was in the uh, roadblock, uh, uh, you know, spending time, it's usually boring as, as hell. He says he entertained himself by shooting off wires of a telephone pole. I mean, think about that. You know, how, you know, what's the cross section of a wire? Maybe a quarter of an inch or something. And he was shooting the wires of a telephone pole with AK-74. So that's uh, like I said, it underlines the the statement I made earlier that. Uh, and Jeff agrees that uh, it's the guy behind the trigger that's accountable for accuracy. I, I think it's been like a propaganda thing, you know, that, that in the U.S. where it's like, oh, they have AKs and they're more reliable, which they most certainly are. But it, but but our but our M16 is more accurate, and and I think it's a propaganda thing because when you're going through basic training, if you were told, yeah, the guys that you're training to fight. Yeah, they have a, their rifle is more reliable and it's just as accurate. It's not really motivating, and so and so we've got it's like, well, what are we what are we gonna? Okay, we're gonna say it's not as accurate or something. It's all it's propaganda. Sonny's it's just, got something to say about shit. that. Really it, it, Sonny. it might it might have held the water when you were talking about the regular M sixteen A ones, A twos, and A A threes when with the what is it twenty inch barrels or whatever twenty how long the barrels were um but as soon as the u.s switched to 14 and a half inches in the m4s i mean that argument went out the window sonny it seems to have something to say about this i look like i have something to say about this oh yeah you're like you're ready to, to jump in get what's on All your right. mind what's well, on your mind <laughs> i will agree with the statement of propaganda but uh, i will i will uh I will ask you to entertain this propaganda coming from whom? And this is this is not you know some government-run 
and and evil capitalists trying to put down the working people's gun. This is our industry, guys. This is our industry. The propaganda comes accuracy as a defining defining qualifier of ability to fight, and it's not. And it's not because when you look at majority of training out there these days. Uh, while while classes and courses and schools and, and curriculums may be called combat this, fighting this, uh, reality is that 99% of it is a one-way square-range shooting. And qualifier and all of that is what? How tight of a group you punched on the paper. That's the main qualifier. If you look at it, you know, you, you, you can ask most people, and uh, I know it's a cliche question, but... In the gunfight, what is more important, to shoot the other guy or not be shot? 99% of people will answer very simply that more important is not to be shot. Yet when you look at the, you know, all the all the little things that need to come together to meet the qualifying, uh, you know, what are you going to be judged by when you're attending training course, training class? is mainly not going to be how well you move, which would determine how hard you would be to shoot, how hard you would be to hit, how well you maneuver, how well you're using cover, concealment, all of that stuff, right? No, it's going to be how tight your group is on the paper. Now, to acquire that tight group on the paper, what do we have to do? All the little basics of mark, marksmanship will have to come in, your, 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 your stance, your trigger control, your side picture alignment, and so forth and so forth. And uh, these are, th there are a lot of contradictory factors. A while ago, about a year ago, I put this little meme together. I said, what if I told you that 99% of shit that you do in the shooting range makes you easier to kill? Uh, I received a lot of hate for that. So when we're talking about propaganda, you know, propaganda is being propagated by people that, that judge accuracy as the main factor of being competent in the gunfight. And I'm not saying it's not important, it is. But if we sacrifice everything else to achieve perfect accuracy, you know, uh, the guy who invented this gun that we're talking about, AK, he had a, one of the most probably misunderstood statements ever made by in the gun industry. Perfect is the enemy of good enough. You know, and, and in the gunfight, mm. you have to ask yourself, if I seek perfection of the shot, what am I sacrificing? Yeah. What am I giving up and what is it going to cost? Sometimes in the gunfight, you have to settle for good enough in order not to be shot your ass yourself, you know? And so when we talk in propaganda, I think a lot of this does come from the shooting industry and... Uh, shooting industries and training industries, uh, infatuation and 100% focus on marksmanship versus a much bigger picture of gunfighting. That's a great yeah. perspective. I like that. So, so Neil, good point. Very good point. Neil, uh, I happen to know that you're a super accurate shooter. Um, Neil is hitting me up to make him some custom sights, uh, which I, I'm very late in delivering. Um, with a very tiny pin because the combat pin that I put on our stock sites is is for, you know, not bad breath distances, but, you know, inside 100 yards is where it's really useful. And um, so 
Neil, what, what has been your experience in combat with, you know, what's the longest shot that, that really, you know, that wasn't just suppressive where, where you were taking your time and, you know, yeah. What, what is the sort of effective combat range that you've experienced, um, for, for the AK? Uh, for the AK specifically, um, I've noticed 300 yards and in, uh, with a 7.62 gun is, is max effective range for guys. Um, at least the guys that I've, that I was in the army with. Uh, and then also the guys I was in the patch with the guys, um, you know, that we do familiar weapons formalization with, um, the standard military 300 in, um, I've pushed the 7.62 round to f a little past 500, um, in competition, uh, on a full size IP six, so a human sized torso, and then 1100 yards with, uh, the five, four, five. Um, so they're, they're capable rounds. Um, it's a lot of that has to do like we were talking before the shooter, and then the platform you're running out of, you know, if you've got, um, you know, a rusted shot out 74, you're not going to get the accuracy you get out of like the Mark 12 that I built in 545 that pushes, you know, out to 77 grain AR worlds. Um, but like when I was with the Pesh, I was just, uh, the, like the firearms instructor for our unit and uh, 300 yards was as far as, as I could expect a normal person to get hits on target. And, and like Sonny was saying, it's, my experience has been, at least in the military side of things, is, you know, quick and dirty. Get get a good sight picture on target, send rounds, because rounds on target are going to be more efficient than misses that you're going to be like, oh, what, did, was he moving or that? And you add to like, you know, did I hit him? Did I not hit him? Let's keep doing this kind of thing. Um, and I, I don't want to speak too much out of turn for combat stuff, because the majority of my experience with the AK and platform in the rounds has been in the competition side of things. Um, and that's where I got most of my experience. I do have like, for example, like this is a direct clone outside of the, the fun switch of the AK that I carried with the Pesh. And I don't even know what kind it is. I didn't know then. I don't know now. I just know that um, it's shitty and it looks ugly, but it works. <laughs> um, and that's... And that's Neil, what you really ask for, right? Neil, with all due respect, um, the standard targets at the basic training of Soviet military, whether it's AKM or uh, AK-74, would have targets at 400 meters with the full expectation of troops hitting it on the regular basis firing full auto. Now, uh, talk about competition, um, Pioneer Arms uh, flown me to um, Vegas this October for the Red October event. And when there was no action, and of course they had their Polish-made um, AKMs there, which, you know, performed satisfactory. And even my son actually ran the course with that thing without a single hiccup. But when, me and CJ Johnson, who uh, the head of uh, uh, Pioneer Arms USA, who bored and started shooting at the rocks at the at the uh, pro gun shop there in Boulder City. Mm -hmm. uh, so we we wanted to know how far we were hitting. we were hitting rocks with like a unbelievable consistency, just with open sights, right? And I'm talking about the rock. Maybe at that distance, um, might have been let's say human torso. Or smaller and when we did the GPS measurement it was uh, 421 
meters to the closest rock. And we were just climbing up to the mountain and hitting them further and further and further uh, with holdovers. So, I mean, uh, sure as hell that gun is capable of hitting beyond 400 meters. Um, and, uh, you know, back in the days where the marksmanship skills were um, taught because you were coming off of the uh, bolt-action long guns, let's say, after the World War II. Uh, yeah, so the, the precise single shots were more priced than, let's say, prey, you know, spray and prey type of deal. Now it seemed to be that uh, we all moving away from it, but then... Uh, you know, like I said, the the gun is, uh, you know, it's got plenty of accuracy built into it. It's just whether or not you can realize that potential with your training or your skill and stuff. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, and I fully agree with that. I'm more referencing um, guys that I've got. So, like, for my time with the Peshmerga, I had to teach dudes. I didn't have an instructor. I don't speak Kurdish. And I had to teach these guys how to be combat effective um within like a week um so my yeah, expectation sure. of them is is 300 yeah, now like mark I, I i fully agree that you know if you get somebody that has the fundamentals and can shoot with open irons on ak you can you could easily push out to distance but the problem is is like the time constraints that i had at least in, in my experience yeah yeah that. that's that's definitely a big factor for sure you, you also have like the ammo too depending on how old it is where it came from like we were, we were shooting the um, um, PSLs, so it it looks like a it looks like an SVD, but it's an AK action. It's not an SVD. It looks like an SVD, and it's shooting the seven six two fifty four. And you know, when I was pushing that thing out to like twelve thirteen hundred meters, you know, with a PSO, I, I want to say my scope was a PSO one or a PSO two. I can't remember now. It's been a while ago. But we would see rounds, my spotter would see rounds where it'd be like, you know, there, there, there. And then, you know, like one would fall off, like, you know, like 300 meters short. So if you're shooting crap old surplus ammo, and I know some of that stuff in Iraq, you know, it was getting it was getting made in like Turkey or Iraq or Egypt and just kind of crap, you know, crap ammo. So, yeah, that, that definitely, that's always my... That's always my, you know, my my kind of my counterpoint when people go, well, my AR is way more, you know, accurate. And it's like, well, okay, well, let's 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 compare apples to apples, right? You know, let me get Hornady ammo, and and shoot it through my, you know, through my Occam Defense rifle against your AR, and then and then we'll be able to where apples. Don't give me some, you know, crappy thing that had rust on it was surplus ammo from who knows where you know turkey or something that you know, it's like you gotta you gotta you gotta do an even test there yeah, yeah absolutely right jeff and i always get involved in those uh, arguments saying uh, oh my uh, daniel defense so and so such and such with this custom grip and custom this and full floating barrel you know we'll outshoot your uh, ak-74 any day and I'm looking at him going, <laughs> well, not Krebs build AK-74, let's say, or Jim Fuller's or something, you know. Or Brian it, Keeney's ODS-75. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, whoever. I mean, uh, you know, we have we have plethora of talented gunsmiths here who can build yeah. the guns that, you know. And you're absolutely right. And the same with ammo. And, uh, yep. and God knows, man, I came across a lot. 
<laughs> ammo would you say ammo is 90% of the the formula there? No, I would say it's a human skill. The human skill. Well, I don't know about the yeah. 90, but uh major portion of it is a human skill. I mean, you got to have good ammo though. Well, the this is well, like yeah, the only obviously. part of the conversation that I feel qualified to speak in because I'm out, you know, testing our rifles every week. And uh, one of the joys of a physics background is knowing the math behind accuracy. And uh, one of the crazy things that you wouldn't expect is that when you're talking about the stacking of the shooter, like if you got a one MOA shooter and you got one MOA ammo and a one MOA gun, independently the uh the group size on the target is going to be the square root of three you, you only get to add the inaccuracies so if you have a perfect gun and a shit shooter or a perfect gun a perfect shooter and shit ammo nothing is good everything sucks and uh i found that out the hard way where it, it it appeared to me as if i had forgotten how to build guns for a little while right at the beginning of COVID, because the quality on a couple different companies absolutely went to shit and it was like a step change and one day i was shooting sub moa targets all day long and then the next week i couldn't hit the side of a barn door and so that's a you're absolutely i absolutely agree marco that if you don't have a good shooter there's no hope like there's no way to buy your way out of being of knowing how to do, you know, fundamentals of shooting. Um, but you know, if, if anything's wrong, uh, life is bad, but it's almost never the rifle. It's so, so rarely the rifle. It's either the ammo or the shooter. Very, very I mean, often. Right. In the perfect world, you want to have a gun in your hands that will do everything for you and aim itself. It's freaking, uh, it would load itself perfectly good and it will hit the target by itself. All you have to do is participate in pulling the trigger. But it's not what it's, you know, that's not what's happening. And I always said it to the students and everybody I encountered. I said the difference between the bad and the good shooter is a number of trigger pulls. The more you shoot, the better you become. And uh, even you would become good. Uh, that you would account for and, and mitigate some of the deficiency of a poor ammunition or the gun that shoots to the left and you know you got to take it to the right a little bit to hit the target and so on and so on. So, um, you know, so I still say the human um, skill and, and, and experience is the major. And um, absolute. I think yep. you said it there a couple of times too, Marco, is you've got to keep in mind like the AK trigger is different than the u.s trigger americans like that trigger that crisp clean break mm. the ak's got that sliding shelf and so for me it took me a little while to figure that out and now for me i actually i prefer the sliding shelf over mm -hmm. the over the break you know mm -hmm. but if you're a, if you're new to it that's a completely alien animal to to somebody like an american because all of our stuff breaks like that versus going over to, you know, going over to the, to the, to the Russian. And so I, you know, so there's a learning curve there as well, for sure. Absolutely. And then there's people like you, Jeff, who are willing to uh, accept that and learn it and then wind up mastering it or the ones saying, ah, this thing doesn't shoot what the shit. 
and just toss it to a side and I'm going to go back to my AI. You know what I'm saying? So that's another thing. You're absolutely right. It was, it's uh, the difference it was, in culture. It was, it was eager. As long as they toss him to my right. side, I'm all right with that. <laughs> mine was ego and pride you know because here i'm working with afghans they're carrying ak's and it was like you know and, and i'd hear them say well of course the americans could shoot better because they're shooting you know because they have these really nice rifles these m4s and so for me it's like if i'm going to lead train and advise these guys i've got to know their system better than they do so that I can teach them on, on that system. And so I was like, no, I'm, and, and I was already, I was like, no, this is a good rifle. I've just got to figure it out. And so I'd get out there and, and, you know, and I had the luxury of like, I could shoot like literally as much as I wanted to. And so I had no excuse. Right. And so I could go out there, but for me, it was a point of ego and pride where it was like, no, I will not allow myself to be outshot by one of my guys. I've got to be able to ma manipulate it faster and better and more efficiently. I've got to be able to shoot, move, and communicate. And I've got to be able to tag that steel when we're out on the range and we're training. And so you fit, you fit, it's like, I'm going to figure this thing out because you don't have a choice, right? That's what the guys have got. So, okay, I'm going to do what the dudes are doing and I'm going to be better at it so that I can, you know, I can lead, train, advise. And, and so, it's a it's a fantastic i mean i hate to sound like a cheerleader but i think it is the most underrated rifle that's out there it's just it's every time i take my ak apart and i look at it i'm just like god damn man this guy he was he figured this out i mean it's the most like i learned so much from this redneck out of the out of the mountains of arkansas that built his first ak we talk about that marty in the and yeah. one of the other things. And, and I just learned so much about that guy, about lever arms and efficiency of energy and stuff. And I looked at that. And the more I read about the Battle of Stalingrad and Russians, you know, starving to death, you know, because there was no, I was just like, man, this is, this is an extraordinarily well thought out machine. Yeah. yeah and uh, interesting. So I kind of, I hate to plug my book in here, but I've, do I'm, it, I'm man. That's what it's about. Do it. No, no, no. I mean, uh, uh, yeah. We're all about plugs. Book, no, no. Uh, well, anyway, I just want to underline what Jeff said is that, um, I mean, what the men submitted for the first round of testing was not it. <laughs> it was completely the only thing in there that remains the same was the rotating bolt which he took from Garant and the M1 carbine. He admitted it. Because everything else... There I, have, I have a video where I make that argument. People are like, you're high. No, he was he was, he was copying the student beer. And I was like, I don't think so, man. And this is this is looked really close to an M1 Garand. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. He even said yeah. it. He thought that that, this, that solution to a lock in the bridge was genius in yeah. rotating and locking with the logs and uh so Sturm Gewehr is still tilting uh tilting bolt, bolt yeah bolt and stuff and then uh another thing is there was another designer you guys know of uh, a little gun called PPS uh, 43 mm -hmm. um that guy uh, was unbelievable it was like a he I think he was an alien 
because he designed that PPS 43 <laughs> when he was 24 years old. And then he died in the rank of a major at age of 28 after having to submit the first, uh, his new automatic rifle in the same competition with Kalashnikov. And he was the only gun that passed the first stage. Everybody else was gone. The problem was he had debilitating disease and he actually wind up dying, not finishing the, the, uh, his gun or perfecting his gun. So the second round rolls around. Kalashnikov borrowed just about everything from that gun. What are you doing? And including the, everything, including the selector, the way the, the long stroke piston attached to the a bolt carrier and everything else. So Kalashnikov, uh, the AK-47 as we know it now, looks the way it is and the way it's assembled is in part due to a genius of another guy. So, and like, like you said, Jeff, early on, it was, uh, it was a team effort. It wasn't, it was a team effort to respond to mother, mother Russia request. Mm -hmm. you know, There's a movie out now. Um, I think it's called the Kalashnikov movie. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. 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 Have you guys seen that? No. Is it's it a, good? No, it's a shitty movie, but <laughs> it's, it's not <laughs> no, very it's, good. It's a, it's I was a, getting excited. It's a Wikipedia, is what it is. I mean, the Wikipedia page put into the uh, pretty the much picture. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, Marco, what's what is your book? Do you talk about AKs and the development in that? Actually, believe in that. So I have a couple books. One of them is under guise of uh, uh, Gun Digest, and that's more of like instructional instructional uh, manual, so to speak. If you never knew it, there uh, is a very little history and then everything else from loading the map, to carrying the gun to, uh, to, um, sighting it in and all that stuff. But the second one, it's actually called, um, survival and evolution of the, uh, world's, uh, most prolific gun, AK-47. And right there, I go all the way to 1906. Not to 1943 or Sturm there where everybody says that that was the concept. No, go to um, 1906 when the uh, further of being a young designer introduced the concept of reduced power cartridge in a full automatic uh, rifle. So, and right there goes all through the stages of development and how the gun has been constantly, or design of it was constantly attacked by other designers, you know, trying to introduce the better mouse trap. And because he had to respond to that, that's how the AKMs came to came to be. That's how AK-74s came to be and so and some other technical uh, design changes in response to the other designers submitting their their uh, their guns. And uh, it's kind of like a it, it was an interesting book for me to write. I really, really enjoyed it because I went into archives. I spoke to people who were involved, and um, and so on and so on. So, I hope you, you know, if you ever get one, uh, let me know what you think. Oh yeah, I'm. That's that's now on the list. I just beat you guys. And there's only one left. Copy. No, there isn't because I just bought it. Did you just buy? Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you go ahead and buy another. So they they place another big reorder with, uh, oh, with Marco Christmas. there. 
Yeah, I definitely. Thank I'm you for the 15 sticker. cents. I'm going to guess on that. <laughs> <laughs> fucking Amazon. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, to pick up on what Marco was saying, you know, Americans tend to have this funny thing about inventions and development of products. Like if you didn't invent it from first concept to completion, you didn't do anything. And Picasso had a great line that good artists borrow and great artists steal. And one of the great things, the reason that the AR-15 has evolved so quickly from Stoner's time to now and the AK-47 is lacking is because of capitalism and competition. And um, so this idea that, that Kalashnikov was stealing stuff, you know, and you didn't say that, Marco, other people do. They somehow diminish the work. And I think it's just the opposite, that, that it's amazing when people see a good idea and capitalize on it and make something better well the biggest thing is that i mean we always in whatever whatever we design something right uh we uh, um we utilize the uh, basic principles of mechanics physics and uh, which is not a secret to anyone i mean right. uh, how to cut a gear and stuff uh and how to you know capture uh, a gas and use the energy to push the piston and whatnot the biggest thing is uh, he was able to put uh, because it, it, I'm looking at the uh, at the any gun as as like a single piston uh, uh, internal combustion engine in a way. Mm -hmm. You know that you use the gas and the, the the explosion to to generate energy to move apart. Yep. And uh, uh, you know you look at it and uh, yeah you will say well that's a great great design. I mean why don't we rag on all of the guys that designed the bolt action rifles <laughs> you know what I mean? right Still, right. to this day there's a new rifles coming out with the ruger savage bergara whatever all bolt action rifles i mean they use the same principle as as uh, uh, uh the guy that originally designed the bolt action gun so yep. you know it's there's only so many ways to skin the cat in the way Right, mm -hmm. and but but putting it together in one functioning mechanism, right, and then giving it uh, the reliability it needed, giving it uh, uh, performance results that uh, that was uh, required of it, is is where the genius lies. Yeah, yep, absolutely. One of my mentors liked to say that the good Lord allowed you to build one of anything. It was building a bunch and having them all work that was the trick, and and I tend to agree with them. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, that's a good, that's awesome quote. I have to say, yeah. All right, so let's do this because we're um, we're getting into the show here, and I want you guys to talk about more of this, but we got to get into the listener questions too. And we got to do giveaways. We got to reward our listeners. Um, Brian, do you think there's another direction we need to head with this conversation, or should we jump into the questions? I think we need a, uh, a a solid blood oath commitment from all these gentlemen to come back for the next season and, and continue the conversation after the questions. I like that. That's my thinking. All right. Put their feet to the fire. Are we getting that from you guys? We got solid c commitments coming back season four. Absolutely. I generally don't Sunny. have anything to do. I don't, so. Sunny. I, 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 I will not commit to anything with anyone. <laughs> right? Man, you know what? Anything I committed to, I've been accused of collusion. So I'm done with commitments. <laughs> We're all about collusions here, brother. 
Come on. Right. Right. Hey, 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 leadheads. This is Lefty. I appreciate each and every one of you tuning in for this season three finale of the Talking Lead AK Corner. It's so good. It's so awesome. There's so much badassiness in this episode that I broke it up into two parts. So this is going to be part one, and then part two will be soon to follow. Now, I wanted to give you the heads up, the courtesy, because I know that a lot of you are going to be listening for that code, that secret code for our Galil Holiday Giveaway that we've got going on with IWI, Lockdown, Enforce, Flatline Fiberco, Seal One, and Mission First Tactical. It's an awesome package that we've got put together, and I know that you want every opportunity, every chance uh, that you can get, and I wanted to give the listeners specifically and exclusively This is not going out anywhere but on this show. So you listeners will be the only ones that get this code and the opportunity for the 500 additional entries. A little leg up on the competition. So that code is coming for 500 additional entries. That's right, 500. Make sure that you catch part two of this season finale because we talk about it there. Plus, there's some other surprises in part two that you're not going to want to miss. So just a little cursey, a little heads up. Don't get frustrated. It's coming. Merry Christmas to all you leadheads and enjoy this episode.